Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need when you need it with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. When you see, for example, during one of the qualifying sessions, you see a car coming into the pit box and then you have like 10 people, they just start doing their thing. You know, they take off the wheel, they they, they kind of polish uh, the stuff, they reju- re- remove dirt. Like there's no manager screaming at them. You know, you do this, you do that. Like everybody already understands their role and their part and they just do it. And and that's evaluated as well. Like after we've done a race or after we've done something, you know, what 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 did we do? Did we, was it clear? Was it not clear? Anyway, it's a loud, loud environment anyway, so it makes sense not to, uh, to have somebody screaming at everyone, but yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my sweatered co-host, Rodney Evans. It's a new sweater. Uh, what's up, everyone? It's slamming. We are also joined by our own colleague, Yurian Kammer, today, who is also the author of the book Formula X, How to Reach Extreme Acceleration in Your Organization. Yurian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the need for organizational speed and other org design lessons that we can learn from Formula One racing, which is pretty hot right now. But before we unpack that, we will check in. Yeah, we're going to ask Yurian to do the check-in round because that's what we do to our beloved colleagues. To our own colleagues. (laughs) (laughs) Out of laziness and also, you know, shared airspace. (laughs) Sure, yeah. So the question I have for you is, what is your relationship to speed? And we'll go Aaron, Rodney, and then myself. My relationship to speed is declining. (laughs) So... (laughs) as a young as a young man, I was pretty aggressively into speed. I actually did um, Skip Barber Formula Ford racing class with my dad when I was in my teens, and we oh. were going real fast, real close to the pavement. And I used to do a lot of other things that were fairly extreme, and that has softened and cooled quite a bit. So the fastest I go these days is maybe trying to get ahead of someone after the light turns green. But I, yeah, I definitely am in a more measured place. For me, I have never really liked to go fast. So when I was really young, like five, it's truly one of my earliest memories. My dad took me on one of those roller coasters. It's called like a wild mouse and it's really jerky and it makes you feel like you're tipping over the side of things. And it was not a great experience. I did not enjoy the wild mouse and it sort of ruined me for speed. And then in college, my best friend who was straight edge. So he he did not partake in many of the other things that we were partaking in, but he was a total adrenaline junkie and he did race cars. So I spent a lot of time subsequently in Porsches with roll bars and uh, harnesses, <laughs> just with my eyes closed, like hoping for the best on hairpin turns in LA. <laughs> um, I didn't really like it, but uh, at least, at least with him, I felt fairly safe, but not, not <laughs> enjoyable. I don't love it. I don't love it. 
That's cool. Yeah, for me, I've I've done a lot of go karting in my in my youth. I I don't think I'm that old yet, but I you know I did a lot of go karting. I drove motorcycles for a while until until I got kids. So we paused that for a moment. Mm-hmm. But I think my relationship with speed is mostly not about the speed itself, but about the g forces you get from accelerating. And fairly recently, I was in a in the world's fastest roller coaster, which went from zero to what is it? What is it in in miles? Like zero to sixty miles per hour, two hundred forty kilometers an hour. Oh, jeez. That like, was too fast. Yeah, in five seconds. So like that was an, an amazing experience. And just like acceleration is what I get. Like that's why I drive a Tesla and that's why I drove two-cylinder motorcycle. So yeah, just live, love the, love the uh, G-forces. Rodney, that's about 149 miles an hour. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> okay. Strapped in your seat. <laughs> well, that that's probably good. That's necessary. So today's topic is this connection between Formula One and org design. And I'd like to start by asking you, Yarian, for the listeners out there uh, who have absolutely no idea what Formula One is, how would you explain the sport in a sentence or a few? Yeah, so... It's a sport where 10 teams are competing with each other. Every team has two racing drivers and they go, they do 23 races in 23 countries on five continents in about eight months. So it's, it's a huge worldwide circus that travels. There's an average audience of 100 million viewers for each race. So it's, it's pretty big globally. And the, the reason why I find it so interesting is because it's, these teams are quite big. Like it's the largest team sport in the world where Every team has somewhere between 500 and 2,000 people. And that makes it an interesting example because they run into org design problems like, like other organizations do. It's so much bigger than you think about when you first approach the sport in terms of org size. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Why is that? So they manufacture the cars themselves. So in, in other racing sports, basically you buy a car and you kind of engineer it and tweak it and you can drive it as fast as possible. But in this case, this case, this is the pinnacle of motorsport and the pinnacle of innovation in technology. So they, they manufacture r- roughly 80 to 90% of every part that goes into themselves from scratch. And the more they can do and the more they can do in-house makes them stronger and better. And it's not only the manufacturing of the of the cars, it's also about you know strategy, it's about data analysis, it's it's about marketing, it's it's everything. Like it's a huge industry. It's almost a company, really, that is just <laughs> competing against nine competitors who are going, you know, extremely fast, reinventing the category every year. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So in your book, Formula X, it is actually a business novel that feels, you know, sort of like the goal that takes inspiration and lessons from Formula One. What are the big org design lessons that you took away from the sport? Yeah, there, there's there's a couple. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole bunch, actually. But I think what is interesting about Formula One teams is that they're able to crank out roughly a thousand changes to, to the car every week. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they're able to innovate at lightning speed and they're able to evolve the, the product really quickly. And they, they found, they found a lot of different ways to, to do that and to enable them to do it. One of it, one of them is that they spend a lot of time learning and reflecting on what's going on. So for example, if you have a race that, that lasts roughly two hours, they spend more than two hours reflecting on all the events that happened during the race. 
And that's just one of the 50 different pre-planned meetings or reflective meetings that are part of their operating rhythm. So if you, you know, if you compare that to the average organization where uh, <laughs> we focus a lot on executing versus reflecting, that balance is completely different. Yeah, we're more of like a 24 hours of Lama kind of business culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, you know, go go forward and, you know, don't don't pause at any time because that feels like a waste of energy. But they see it as the exact opposite. It's one of the things they do. That's so interesting. So besides some of those reflective practices, and I love that because we do talk so frequently in companies about, you know, the fact that so many organizations spend 95% of their time together planning and 5% reflecting. And we're like, yeah. do it the other way around. So obviously learning retrospection is something we believe strongly in and don't think there is enough of. When you think more broadly about Formula One through a systems thinking lens, why do you think it's so instructive as a model for organizations that are really looking for more nimbleness, more agility, more speed? Yeah, so the Formula One teams, they actually prove that it is possible to innovate at this speed in a highly regulated environment. So like very often when when we try to do stuff around agility with companies, they're like, yeah, that might work for a music player or <laughs> or a startup, so but true. you know, we're mm-hmm. we're a bank. You know, that doesn't work here or you know, there's a regula- regulation that we need to follow, but the rule book in F1 is very big. Um for good reasons as well. It's it's also for, mostly for safety. Um you cannot kind of have the car fall apart mid mid race because people get killed. So regulation is is tough and strong and still they're able to innovate. And I think one of the things that really helps which I don't see often in other companies is this this relentless clear focus that they have, right? They, they have mm-hmm. a very, very simple and clear focus, which is to win races and win championships. And that is obviously much harder to get clear in, in our everyday organization, but still you can make a lot of effort to to get it to that clarity and to get to, to an environment where basically every team in the organization knows exactly what they're contributing to that higher goal. Yeah. I'm always so jealous of activities where winning is observable. <laughs> There it is. They (laughs) crossed the finish line first. There's something you said, though, that's a little bit off off book here that I want to dig into, which is they have a ton of regulation. There's a a big fat rule book. And yet Mm -hmm. they're doing a thousand changes a week, which sounds completely unbelievable. What is the relationship like between the regulators or the rule enforcers and the teams that allows that to even happen? Like, how would you even process a thousand changes in a week? with a regulator. Yeah, I mean the the regulator is definitely not involved in every sure. change of course, but they set the guardrails within what is needed. So there's there's different rules for different components. In terms of safety, obviously you need to go through some a lot of mandatory mandatory safety tests if you change a, a part that has lots of safety implications like the crash structure. There's also a lot of regulations to to make sure that that the playing field is leveled so that mm. a couple of teams cannot just be so far ahead of the competition. So certain innovations are actually going to be forbidden at a certain moment because it's going to be too expensive or too too difficult for other teams to catch up. So it's a really tough one. And especially in the last season, the rules have been bent by teams and uh, there's lots of controversy mm. around it. But I think I think in a lot of ways, what, what teams can do is they actually, when they have an innovation they want to bring to the market or to the sport, they can you know have a conversation in the back room with the regulator. Like, hey, we're trying to do this. We think it's legal. What do you think? And please don't tell the other teams. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely some negotiation happening there as well. And I think that's, it could be similar in the in the business world where sometimes, you know, there's a basically a dialogue happening between the, di- the regulator and the, and the organization. We work in a lot of organizations, and you're in some that you and I have worked in together, where mm-hmm. 
it's sort of like what the regulator says, what the external body says is gospel. And now our job is just to figure out how to comply with the letter of the law, if not with the spirit of the law, frankly, Mm -hmm. a lot of times. And I often hear this call from leaders that's like, how can we be more collaborative with these regulatory bodies? You know, we actually are in many ways working in an in aligned purposes, which is often about keeping customers safe or, you know, doing the right thing. But the policies don't always make sense. How can we be at the table influencing that? So I'm just curious because it sounds like in the Formula One arena, that does happen. Like, Mm -hmm. what can other kinds of industries learn from how that goes there. Yeah, I think I think what is often missed in 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 our everyday organizations is that people don't often look closely to the precise rule book or the precise instruction. Mm. You know, what tends to happen is that there's an internal compliance check department that tells people yes or no based on what they bring to them. And then you get all these stories like, oh no, we cannot do this innovation because because it's not allowed. But then if you actually go to the actual sentences of the regulator and you look at the rules, oftentimes it is allowed or there is wriggle room there. But we, we tend to not do it and, and leave it out to, to the compliance experts. And I think when you look at Formula One, they really... T- pay really close attention to what is precisely in there mm-hmm. to also know what is not in there so that actually they can you know break the rules sometimes to to innovate and find a find a gap in the regulation that gives them a competitive advantage so i guess i'm going to zoom back out which is to focus more on speed as a thing that we even need at all so it is very impressive what they're doing it's fantastic that they're moving so quickly and and making these changes at scale with large organizations but why is speed important? What, you know, what tends to stop organizations from reaching that extreme acceleration? And why do you think it matters? Yeah, I think it's becoming this, you know, dull catchphrase of, you know, the world is changing more faster, but it is actually true. Like if you want to, if you want to continue to meet the speed of the market and the, and the, you know, the customer expectations to continue to outpace your competitors, it, it is important to have a certain speed in how you respond to the market and how do you, you know, bring new things to the market. And, you know, so often you see companies not having that companies having big trouble, you know, putting something out there and that you get basically caught up in bureaucracy with, you know, speed of decision-making, you know, meetings where you have to propose something and then people not willing to make risks. So yeah, I think it matters. I mean, in a a lot of ways, if you you don't change, if you don't have the capability to continuously innovate and and, and change then, or or bring stuff to market, then you'll, you'll, you know, you'll decline and die over over time, I think. I feel like there's this misconception that we hold in the world of products and services, particularly products and software products, that some of them are just done. Mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah, it feels like Twitter's kind of done. Like it is what it <laughs> yeah. is. And what I love about the the Formula One metaphor, you know, analogy, cr- cross learning opportunity is I I thought those cars were pretty much done when I was 12 and we were, you know, looking at the, at the state of the industry and they were screaming fast and amazing and they could be driven upside down at a high enough speed. They had so much downforce and it just Mm -hmm. felt like that's the pinnacle of human engineering. And now we're 20 years later, 30 years later, and you look at it and you're like, Oh my God, this thing is a friggin' spaceship. Like (laughs) there's still more room, which I think is actually a nice challenge to the business community. 
Yeah, I mean, the cars are always evolving. You know, the, the moment one team brings an innovation to the racetrack, other teams take notice and they try to copy it. And on average, over the course of a season, these cars become two seconds per lap faster. <laughs> so imagine showing up at the first race, having the fastest car. And then like like you said, Aaron, just say, oh, we're done for this year. Like we're not going to innovate. You're going to be at the back of the grid roughly halfway the season already. So it's it's something they need to continuously do. Otherwise, they won't be able to win the championships. So. Talking about speed within Formula One's context is is pretty straightforward because it's a race and the winner goes the fastest. Uh, <laughs> when you think about speed you're in within an organization, what do we actually mean? Because it is a bit more nuanced than just go fast. Mm-hmm. I would say is minimize time wasted on things that could be better, right? So so for me, speed is, is about always finding ways to go faster and to go better and not being happy and complacent with with the current status quo. There's always things you could improve. And I think what you want is to have an organization where everybody is always on the lookout for things to improve and to go better. Because if that's built in, then you can adapt when you need to adapt. Yeah. I I also think that um, where I see organizations get this wrong or just misapply this idea is is that they just sprint they just sprint on everything right and, right and that's not that's not what we mean like i think the more critical elements from your book are about reflection are about pausing and are about yeah. clearing out what's not necessary not just like running harder which i think you know when it, when organizations sort of get get this idea about speed, what that often looks like is something that is not going to be sustainable in the long term. No, that's true. Like it, it is about sustainable pace, and within within that sustain, sustainable pace, do do the best you can. I think it's it's really about working smarter all the time instead of working harder all the time. Which which you know, faster doesn't mean that you need to work harder. It's not going from from crisis to crisis. That's definitely not the point. It's really the point that you know when when you want to achieve something, do it in the fastest possible way, but do it in a way that you can continue doing that at that pace all the time. So you know, for example, we we do we, we can definitely take lessons from from a crisis because if there is a crisis, oftentimes you just drop everything. You get the people together that uh, that are the, the the relevant people in the room with the expertise. You get them to solve a problem, and then you disband. And I think that is in itself is a lesson of what we could do always instead of only when there's a crisis but then do it without the you know working at nights and and you know and, and different hours i'm always so surprised when the crisis is over that people go back to their old jobs and basically all the all the <laughs> slow decision making and approvals go, go back in um, like, Whew, that was hard <laughs> yeah i mean yeah i mean the the recent you know the the development of the covid vaccines there's coming more more information out in the open now how pharmaceutical companies have been able to to push those to the to the market as fast as they did and a lot of it was about you know they basically were able to break through all the bureaucracy and all the red tape mm-hmm. and just go fast and they got approvals for everything while still obviously keeping the the quality and compliance checks in place hey rodney you know what i'd like to see go faster what's that the growth of this show <gasps> oh what's our version of two seconds faster on this show mm. I think it looks a lot like people that are listening leaving a review or sharing oh. the show with a friend who needs it. Two to three friends who need it? <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, two to three, two to three seconds per lap. <laughs> Thanks, friends. So, Urian, in Formula X, you outlined the FASTER model, or six ingredients needed to accelerate any organization. Mm-hmm. What are the ingredients and how do they relate to our work? 
Yeah. So top to bottom, it's so it's an acronym. So the F stands for focus and clarity, accelerating decisions, simplify team engagement, elementary physics and rhythmic learning. Um, so I'm not going to go to all of them in detail, but I think let's start with focus and clarity, I guess. Like the, the subtitle of that is have a clear and inspiring goal that works as a compass. A lot of that is actually inspired by Greg McEwen's work on essentialism. Mm. He was also part of the show, of course. And that is all about, you know, defining a goal, defining an intent that is both inspiring and clear. And it allows everyone in the organization to, to already know basically what is the, the thing we need to do. So that work is, is very important work because it actually reduces friction in a lot of ways. So that makes sense. And I think we talk a lot about purpose on the show. One of the things that you said that that felt a little more novel was elementary physics for the mm-hmm. E of faster. Can you unpack that one a bit? Yeah, sure. That got in a book because my co-author is a physics professor. So uh, he, he has a lot of interesting thoughts about physics in organizations. And actually, Niels Flegging, another uh, thinker in our space, wrote, wrote a lot of stuff around that. But the, the whole idea of, of using physics as a metaphor in our work is that, first of all, you can you can use some of the laws of, of physics here. For example, if you, if you focus on speed, it's maybe less useful. It's more useful to focus on acceleration. Because if you, if you are accelerating on a constant uh, pace, you always are a little bit accelerating. Basically, you will go faster every time automatically. So if you, you know, if you go 1% better every day, mo- you know, your, all your problems will be solved basically by time. And mm-hmm. the other part of that, that, that chapter is about focusing more on effect, even over mm-hmm. focusing on efficiency. You know, in, in, our, in our world, you know, there's a lot of management speak about efficiency, 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 trying to crank out more production with less hours or maybe tracking time with people and like, you know, treating our workforce as, as factory workers. While in fact, the, the most the fastest companies in the world, they understand that effectiveness is more important. So they don't really care if people take more vacation days or if they, you know, you know, um, run around doing some, playing some foosball on the foosball table or like it doesn't feel very efficient, but it's super effective. I like the idea of understanding the physics of your category or the physics mm-hmm. of what you're trying to do as, as kind of a first principles understanding of if we do this, we get that. Yeah. And I remember in one of the Ready's episodes talking about our own growth, Rodney, you and I were talking about when we understood that hiring more people was what drove growth for us, not chasing more work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That felt like elementary physics. Yeah, totally. It also, this conversation is making me think about, um, I really like the acceleration provocation you're in. And one thing that that we've talked a lot about in various pockets at the Ready is how fast can you learn? <laughs> and that in terms of our own, like if what we're trying to do in the world is help organizations become evolutionary and be evolutionary ourselves, the catalyst to evolution is learning. And so it's like, it's not about necessarily learning more stuff. It's not about necessarily quantity or even efficiency. It's just like how much faster is the cycle time for gathering gathering information from an experiment, from a novel practice, from whatever, integrating it, making use of it, and then <laughs> mm-hmm. being able to apply it. And it's, it's like the, the shorter that cycle time is, the yeah. the better the better off we are. Uh, so I think that's a really cool provocation. And I think it gets people out of the mindset of just like, do more faster, because like that often doesn't get us yeah. much. 
Yeah, and to to build on that, I think a lot of this goes back to to books like The Goal, where mm-hmm. we are focusing on on the, the theory of constraints. Like, what is the actual bottleneck here? And optimizing anything but the bottleneck is a waste of energy. Mm-hmm. Totally. So in the book you wrote, F1 racing teams and other fast organizations understand that the real risk is that they become too slow to survive. They need everyone in the team to constantly find ways to get another fraction of a second out of the car. How do Formula One teams balance the need to innovate really, really quickly against what's safe to try? So to your point about constraints, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) we we can innovate in a dangerous way, but how do we keep that safe to try constraint in innovation? Yeah, it is. It is definitely a balancing act. Formula One teams are really good uh, at balancing the idea of risk and reward. So, so they are very intentional about how much risk are we taking versus what is the possible upside that we're getting. They definitely deploy strategies of you know diversifying their portfolio of risks, right? Like maybe we would definitely want to optimize the current front wing, but also try something really radical with our next year's or next month's front wing. And the the interesting thing is that they 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 do a lot of simulation. In, in the computer, in their wind tunnels. And then when they can, they can put it on the car during the practice sessions before the weekend. So so they do get to test their innovations on the track to know what is working and what is not working. Yeah, so and you know, it's, it's all about going fast without sacrificing that that quality and reliability and safety that you need. And they they have a lot of technology in place to, 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 to both to simulate things, but also to automate any of those tests that they need to do. So if you, you, know, you, have, an, if you have a new part, you press a button and you already know if it's safe. You don't need to mm. uh, do five weeks of, of testing or, or other manual stuff. Most is most of the stuff is anim- uh, automated. For example, one thing I saw when I was at one of the Formula One uh, team's factories, what if they, you know, if they create a new part, they first draw it in the computer. They then then almost like 3D print it or make it make it in a you know they, they manufacture it in in the in their factory and then after it's completely done they do a full highly detailed 3D scan to know if the if the part that they created is precisely what they kind of were designing for in the in the computer so that you know you're kind of reducing any possible margin for error there interesting before you mentioned that these teams are big you know hundreds of people and I'm imagining, based on everything else you've said, that they're probably not sending every decision up to the CEO for approval before no. they push it back down. <laughs> so how how does a, an F1 team empower its structure and its people and its subteams to be adaptive and human and resilient and all the things that we talk about on the show? Yeah, for sure. So the there is a very strong role clarity and autonomy in these teams. So like the 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 team principals, they know that they hire very specialized talent and there's no point in telling them how to do their jobs i mean there there's definitely clear priorities from from the top and from from left to right in terms of what you know what the team wants to focus on what areas that needs improvement and but but the the within the teams there's a high autonomy of how to do that and one one example of that role clarity uh, is when when you see for example during one of the qualifying sessions you see a car coming into the pit box and then you have like 10 people they just start doing their thing you know they take off the wheel they 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 kind of polish uh, the stuff. They reju- re- remove dirt. Like there's no manager screaming at them. You know, you do this, you do that. Like everybody already understands their role and their part, and they just do it. And and that's evaluated as well. Like after we've done a race or after we've done something, you know, what 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 did we do? Did we was it clear? Was it not clear? 
anyway, it's a loud, loud environment anyway. So it makes sense not to, uh, to have somebody screaming at everyone, but yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm curious if, if a lot of that role work is done, which is, has very direct parallels to self-managing teams. Um, mm-hmm. like how dynamic can those teams be? So if I'm someone yeah. who cleans dirt off the car and you're someone who changes tires, do I know how to do that job in case you get distracted by something else? Well, no, not necessarily, but uh, there's definitely some some parallels in the in the pit stop teams. The, basically, the 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 mechanics that uh, that change the tires in two seconds. What what actually is interesting about that is that the crew that's doing that has additional roles during the rest of the weekend. Mm. So, for example, the 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 person that's removing the right rear wheel of one of the of Red Bull Racing, one of the racing teams, is actually the truckie. That during you know outside of the race uh, window is responsible for you know, driving driving the trucks to the airport, and I know the the person that's lifting the front the front wing is one of the IT guys that actually has most of their job before the weekend setting up the IT connectivity, and then during the race uh, can do something else. So there is definitely fluidity of roles. I, I but that's mostly I think in the racing team. It's a small team that goes to the racetrack. They can only bring roughly sixty people to the racetrack, and the other nine hundred or fifteen hundred people in the factory. They they are not they don't have a role during the race and and I, I would say like the the special with this size the there's lots of specialism so I would say like if you are a gearbox or an aerodynamics expert I don't see you play in other roles um, uh, that much though I think that's a really interesting point though because you know in a lot of recent episodes where we've been talking more about DAOs and role clarity and Aaron and I talking about our own roles in self-management and things like that it's like I think what you're pointing at is a very smart way to slice roles that can be more dynamic and Mm -hmm. roles that require more stasis because of the level of subject matter expertise they need so I think it's a cool mental model for like where to constrain that where to encourage people to hold multiple roles so that they can be more dynamic wear multiple hats get some efficiency and cross learning and where that doesn't work as well and not to beat a drum that I beat constantly but what you're seeing there is literally the bifurcation between the complex and the complicated Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. building a race car is complicated racing it is complex and so here's the complex team coming to the track with a different set of, you know, constraints and then the factory team producing something that has to be high tolerance and and meeting these specifications. Smart low tolerance I should say. So Yurian, why write a business fable rather than just a straight up nonfiction book? How do you think presenting these lessons in this more narrative story has helped spread the message? Oh yeah, that's a good. That's an interesting one. Well, but, I well, feel first, subtweeted. For, first, first of all, I just really enjoy reading um, business fables. So I thought when I was going to write a book, let's let's write a business fable because it's just fun fun to do. Hard uh, plus but, one to that. I hate business books. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, you know, very often when when I show a, a case study article to to a client they're like yeah you know but we're not spotify yeah like, yeah okay nice and then i send a, another article like yeah i know but we're not you know we're not higher or we're much like there there's always excuses why the the examples that you put in front of them are not are not relevant they're not applicable yeah uh, but if you if you give them a story or something that's so far out of their relation relational zone of like for example formula one mm-hmm. they're much more receptive to to then thinking of going in a different mindset like ah it's not us but what can i learn here so that's that's one way uh, one reason the other thing is that the the book the story in the book is really an arc of struggle 
So in, in the story, you'll follow the, the general manager of a kitchen factory, and he's trying to radically accelerate its organization, but he's failing and he's trying all the traditional ways, who then fails, like all the traditional top-down controlly type ways. And then, and then after, you know, after visiting an F1 race and being able to go behind the scenes there, he gets some inspiration. He starts applying some of those lessons. Mm-hmm. And I think in a, in a story format, you can just put more, put more ideas in rather than having checklists or like boring, <laughs> boring chapters who just outline the steps. Totally. You're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> your, your book is an exception, Aaron, but truly I feel like my, my, my reading taste is like, if it's going to be really heavily work-related, then I need it to be fed to me like a story. Yes. Or if it's going to be nonfiction and nerdy, then I need it to be something adjacent. Like, mm. I'll read all day about, like, social psychology, but I don't right. want to read, like, a business book that's in the rocks. airport. And I think, so So this book came out, I think, about a year after Brave New World came out. Mm. And I've, I've been pitching it as, as the appetizer for Brave New Work. Nice. So like if you have a, a, a leader or someone you want, want to convince and they're just so busy, you know, they're never going to really go through a dense, you know, dense book like Brave New Work is, but, but maybe they have three hours on a Saturday afternoon to read the story. Like you can send them Formula X and they will get some of the same lessons. And if they like it, maybe it's a you know, gateway drug to the, to the Brave New Work book. That is funny. I love that. So I've, I've noticed something which I love the synchronicity of, because it, it, feels like we've we've kind of made it through the the arc that we wanted to hit together and so it does seem like a pretty good place to draw things to a close and this would be if we drew it to a close right now i believe one of our fastest episodes <laughs> even though it's felt it's felt very spacious and luxurious but yeah. somehow we've been able to be quite efficient and precise and so i just think that's fantastic urian where can our listeners find out more about you and your work and your book yeah, you can contact me at uriankamer.com. I'm Urian Kamer on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And you can look for Formula X in, in all of your favorite bookstores. Urian, thank you so much for joining us for this very speedy and also very informative episode. You're welcome. I, I enjoyed it a lot. A quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work as fast as they can. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. Hey.